All right. Let's return to where we were. Of course, in typical fashion, we did stop uh, right in the middle of a lesson, which we kind of do. And again, I'm, it's a balance teaching through these. I've never, with, with curriculum type books, I never stick right to the script. There's always different emphases. And of course, uh, you know, knowing where our church family's at in different areas, there's always kind of an individual uh, type of application. So we're plowing our way through, hopefully fast enough to get through it and slow enough to actually uh, learn the material. But what we're talking about is Bible text structure. All right, now is there, let me just ask this question, is there a danger of treating the Bible too scientifically to where your study just becomes purely mechanical? Is that, is that possible? It, it is possible. So in all this stuff we go through, obviously the most important issue is the state of our fellowship with the Lord. Um... Is sin confessed? Is, am I submitted to the Lord in every known area? Is my attitude coming to the Word of God that it is the Word of God and then I'm going to do what it says? Okay, so all that goes without saying. I know we're not emphasizing that a lot in this particular section of the course, but boy, is that important. I think I've mentioned to you before uh, one of the things I highly respected about Lewis Berry Schaefer. I mentioned John Walvert earlier in the... Uh, a series on apostasy, and uh, he was—he came after Schaefer had founded Dallas Seminary back when it was still fairly solid. As a preacher friend of mine said, I wouldn't even send my dog to Dallas Seminary now, uh, and I agree with him. But one of the things Schaefer did—Schaefer, I love the way Schaefer wrote, and he's a godly man. It just comes through in his writings. And but in seminary, every year. You know, here's the cream of the crop intellectuals within the ranks of fundamental Christianity, what it was at the time. Here's the young men that are going to influence. The guys like J. Vernon McGee were there. Um, many, many other names you would know uh, were trained there. And uh, he would spend an entire week every year going through the importance of the spiritual life before God and fellowship with God and having that foundation laid or all that we teach you is useless. Um, before they got into the academia of it, he always spent an entire week on that, every single year. And that said a lot about, about his mindset. Let me turn on these fans too, by the way. There we go. So I just want to highlight that before we go forward. But all right, in, in, in structural integrity of a passage, we're using the an analogy of uh, architectural designs, engineering designs, they have to have structural integrity. The same is true with literature. I mean, any literary critic would agree with that. You know, I mean, why are there editors for authors? Basically, you could have somebody who's a very gifted author, and, and what are they going to do with their book? They don't self-edit. They, they give it to an objective source who generally rips it to shreds. <laughs> it, it's full of red marks, shorten this, lengthen this, get rid of this, change this word, add more vocabulary, stop repeating yourself here. Uh, because structure is important, and obviously when it comes to God communicating with man, it's infallible. We don't sit as editors on the Bible. That's a mistake when men try to do that, obviously. But paying attention to structure is huge. Uh, we really can't understand a text of Scripture unless we have some idea of the structure. And again, we must hold tight to the biblical doctrine of inspiration. This is God-breathed. It says what God said, and it said it the way He wanted to say it. So we were talking about narrative literature... And uh, when you're observing narratives, what's the major thing you should look for in a narrative? What's the most important thing? Any narrative. God. 
the centerpiece of any narrative is God himself. Every narrative that's in Scripture, think about this, every narrative in the Bible is there to teach you something about God. The positive and negative examples, the way God dealt with Balaam, uh, the way God dealt with, uh, remember the Syrian king that he came to be healed and he was told go dunk, dunk in the Jordan seven times? Nope. I mean, you, it's not hard to see. Are there parallels to that? I mean, think of some of the parallels. What does that teach us about God, by the way? Let's just apply that. Here's this guy, he's told, here's the solution to your leprosy. Go to that river, that, not, not that river, that river. Dunk seven times and you'll be healed. And his response, what's his response? Aren't there better rivers where I come from? And he's mad and he leaves. What are, think of that. What, what, does anybody do that with the gospel? Does God change the message for them? Nope. Now, he could have gone and dunked in his rivers and stayed in his leprosy. People do that all the time. So a, a narrative like that, you can look and go, boy, this guy's a real knucklehead. Or boy, it's amazing how the prophet handled it. But the central lesson is, look how God handled it. What does that teach us about him? And so narratives, the central thing is how God deals with mankind. And then those narratives many times become symbols of spiritual truth, but we have to be careful in that. Many times the scriptures will make that connection for us. We talked about the brazen serpent, which the Lord himself used uh, as in John 3. Just like Moses lifted up that serpent. And the, symbol, the symbolism, I think I said it last week, that's one of my favorite passages to preach the gospel from. I, I always love getting to John 3 with somebody no matter how long it took to get there, sometimes it's an hour or two, sometimes it's a half an hour, sometimes it's weeks. But that passage is so tremendous. That picture of the brazen serpent is astounding. And that was given to illustrate spiritual truth to bring people from death unto life. Okay, so people can go overboard applying symbols. Again, uh, generally the Bible is going to make them very plain if they are spiritual or if they're symbols that we can bring across today. Uh, once again, a doctrinal belief shouldn't be based just on a narrative. Why is that? I mean, why, why shouldn't I go to the book of Judges and find one of the stories there and base my doctrinal belief on that? I mean, why isn't the Bible just full of narrative? Wrong time period. Wrong time period's one of them. What else? Okay, let me, let me put it this way. What are the other types of Bible literature in the Scriptures? What do they do to a narrative? They shine light on a proper interpretation of it. I would submit you would have no idea how to understand the book of Judges if it wasn't for Psalms, Proverbs, the law, uh, the law especially. Um, and then, of course, what the New Testament gives in addition to that. And so... Uh, you and I tend to do the same thing. I mean, if you're, if you're familiar with uh, Old Testament literature as a believer, you, you and I automatically make applications based on other books of the Bible. Automatically. And that's a good thing. Because that whole body of truth is, is, is keeping checks and balances at how you interpret that. So somebody goes, just do a narrative. This happens all the time today. That's how many people defend women preachers. Is they'll go to a narrative. They go to the story of Deborah. And they go, see, here she is, Deborah the prophetess. 
There she is. And they say, you know, the, the men wouldn't lead. Barak was a, a real milk toast. And uh, the men wouldn't lead, so the women took over. And so that's what needs to happen today. Oh, what's the issue with that? <laughs> the context of Judges tells you every man's doing that which is right in his own eyes. The New Testament epistles are the standard for what takes place in a church. It's just every kind of wrong. So the narratives are there, but they don't stand alone. Okay, you, you get into trouble when, you, when, when your only defense of a particular doctrine is a narrative, you get yourself into trouble. Okay, because the central point is teaching God's dealings with mankind. Um, another important point, I mentioned Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those that, be, those that are revealed belong to us and to our children. There are things that God is not going to unravel for us in this life. There are certain things he didn't reveal to us about certain meanings of certain Bible texts. And I mentioned it, a lot of the how and why. I mean, how did God preserve Jonah? How did Noah build the ark? How, 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 how? How'd the walls of the Red Sea look exactly? Were they straight vertical? Were they curved? Uh, when they parted, was it just like a woof and off they went? Was it just a gradual? I, I don't know. I mean, I can get some clues from the Scripture. But those obviously aren't the most important thing. And then again, what you mentioned about the time zone, the narratives fall into different dispensations. Okay, they fall into those, and again, a dispensation is a stewardship. They're not fake divisions that men made up. They are just recognizing the natural differences in the ages as God revealed himself. And uh, I marvel, I really do, I marvel that dispensationalism is so heavily maligned. I shouldn't marvel because of the age we live in, but... It's amazing to me the confusion that results when it's thrown out, when the distinctions in the scriptures aren't kept. When you see a Christian person and they're going to keep the law of Moses as their rule of life. Actually, uh, I mean, I, this, I, uh, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, uh, moved over to the East Coast a few years back. And uh, he, was, he was looking for a church over there. And I got online just for hoots and I was looking around. And, and the closest one to him is a fundamental Baptist church. I called him. I said, don't go to that one. Be, right on their website, our goal is to live up to the law of Moses in our daily Christian life. I was, I was, I was astonished by that. So I cannot believe they, I, I just, it blows me away. So I told him, I said, don't, don't go there. There, boy, are they, they, they missed the dock and walked off into the ocean. They... Unbelievable. But not recognizing the distinctions, you get confused about the difference between Israel and the church, etc. We went through those in dispensationalism. So when you're looking at a narrative, it's important to ask, what, what dispensation are we in? What was the stewardship given to mankind? In other words, what does that tell you? What are God's covenants that he made that were in place in that era? What, what was God's relationship with that particular person? Uh, for I mentioned the book of Judges. Why, why is the law so important there? Judges is merely the fulfillment of the warnings in the law of what happens when you reject it, hurl out the scriptures, and decide you want to be like all the nations around you. That's, that's what Judges is telling you about. It's the folly of ignoring the precepts of God. That's the whole book is talking about that. And so the right application is, I sure don't want to live in that. 
I don't. Where even the most astute person in that era was really pretty blind. And God was very merciful, by the way. Uh, when, a, when a people group is so engrossed in stupidity, God is very merciful at, at, at taking steps towards them as they take steps towards Him. And, and we may look and go, that was nothing. Yeah, but for where they were, that was huge. Um, so we see God's dealings with men, but we have to understand the dispensation because that tells us a lot about what's really going on. And that helps us make right application. Is this something I should emulate, this particular example? Or are there just strictly theological lessons about God's character that I have to apply and bring across? Because this is always an application. We just have to make sure we make the right one. And then we were talking about the poetry. Parallelism, a lot of times, if you're, if you're into... I, I've never been into diagramming sentences, but I know people that are. and So it's kind of this mirror image of parallelism. A lot of the Psalms are like that. It'll give, there's this central thought, and it will build down to the central thought and then back out to the same place it started. And you see this parallel going through almost a mirror image. And the Hebrew mind apparently learned very well that way. Um, and again, the Psalms employ poetic language. They are poetry, and uh, literal interpretation doesn't mean we don't recognize figures of speech. It just means normal language. And I think God, by the way, nor language is still sort of normal, sort of. Sort of. It's losing its normality. Uh, but we still, intrinsically, by way of growing up communicating, we understand a lot about language. We, we understand sarcasm. We understand uh, when somebody's plainly speaking allegory, similes, uh, metaphors, uh, hyperbole, exaggerations, not the lying kind, but just figures of speech. Okay, we recognize that. And God does the same thing. He puts seasoning on his language. We're talking about God... Uh, having feathers and wings. We ended there. Remember the Mormon kid that was asked to explain how God appears like a big chicken in that passage because he was arguing that God is a man just like us. And the Bible teacher was saying, no, he's not. And he pointed to the passages that talk about God's hands. And he said, well, then read this to me in Psalm 91 about God's feathers and his wings. It's obviously poetic language. Okay, God doesn't have feathers and wings. Um, my wife and I were talking last night. In fact, remember the, when it talks about God singing in the scriptures? He'll rejoice over that he was singing. And she said, you ever, you ever picture God singing? And I said, I know he does. He's the source of music. He must be musical. The Bible says he is. But I can't picture God singing because I can't picture God. I can't picture. I don't know what he looks like. Not some image. Okay, but yet, of course, he's pictured as singing. So, um, now the Psalms, when we think of Old Testament poetry, we typically think of the Psalms. Okay, but it's actually mixed, uh, really, throughout the Old Testament. In fact, uh, turn to Judges. I just mentioned that one. Let me, let me give an example. Turn to Judges. <clears throat> now, I'm not trying to make this trite or anything, and I, and I don't mean this that way, but you ever watch one of these old musicals? And, and you think, we don't, I mean, I haven't watched, seen a lot of them, but all of a sudden everybody just dropped a hat, bursts into song. And you think, nobody does that. Who, wait, how does everybody know the song and when to sing it and what their part is, you know? But in a sense, some of these Old Testament narratives, they just burst into song. And I'm not saying it was like a musical necessarily, but I'm saying it was sort of part of their expression to the Lord. They knew they were made that way. So right in the middle of the narrative of Judges, of Barak 
and Deborah. And then you get to verse five or chapter five. The narrative stops. Then sang Deborah and Barak the song of Abinoam on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. And then you go through this song about, uh, oh, what was the guy's name that she killed? Just jail? Jail? It's uh, singing about his mother not seeing him come home. And uh, about the lady singing about this guy and that he's actually dead. And it's almost a, it's almost a gloating over God wiping this guy out. And they're actually they're, they're singing about this. Um, 2 Samuel 22. You see leading up to that, there's the killing of, of these four other giants of Gath. Goliath, by the way, had five brothers. Some people think that the reason David took five stones is because he intended to kill all of them. Goliath and the other four. I don't know that for sure. It doesn't say that in the text. But Goliath had four other brothers, and they're killed in, uh, in 2 Samuel 21, and then 2 Samuel 22 is a song of victory, another poem of victory. By the way, let me give an illustration of something, putting things in the right dispensation. Everybody know what an imprecatory psalm is? What is an imprecation is basically calling down God's curses and judgment on your enemies. That's an imprecation. Now, have you ever gone through the Psalms and noticed how many imprecatory Psalms there are? Lord, bust the teeth out of their head. Dash their little ones against the stones. Grind them under the chariot wheel. You remember, remember you ever read some of those? And maybe you thought, I'm not sure what to do with that. Here's where dispensational truth comes in. Does God want me to pray down judgment on my enemies today? There may be, there may be some examples of that, maybe in a, in, a, in a limited setting, but as a general rule, no, you don't see that in the New Testament. Um, as a general rule. I mean, you see Paul saying of Alexander the coppersmith, the Lord reward him according to his works. I mean, that's an imprecation, sort of. But why do we make sense out of it? You make sense out of it because... In the dispensation of law, God had promised Israel would be his mouthpiece. Evangelism would work strictly through people becoming Jewish proselytes. And God had promised to defend them with force against their enemies. You remember? They go into Canaan. And God will destroy their enemies. He'll drive them out with, with pestilence, with famine, with hornets. Can you imagine hornets running you out of the countryside? That would not be very pleasant. And so... They were praying according to God's covenant with them. Those imprecatory psalms, that's what they were. Um, the Jews, by the way, had a hard time recognizing the dispensational change in the New Testament church. It took them quite a while. Um, those dirty Gentiles, they don't deserve the gospel. And it took them a while to get out of that mindset. And sometimes they took it too far. Anyways, I, I want to move on from that. But that's, I think, a proper way to look at the imprecatory psalms. You look at it as... Will God, will God defend his people? Yes. You know, we're told vengeance is mine, I will repay. We're told heap coals of fire on your enemy's head, which doesn't mean burn his scalp. It means treat them kindly and pray for God to convict them. That's the coals of fire, I think. You love them that curse you, and you uh, pray for those which persecute you and despitefully use you. All right, so narratives, poetry, uh, and then we have the wisdom literature. <clears throat> uh, wisdom literature teaches us how to live with biblical skillfulness. 
wisdom literature is sort of like how to use your dagger, you know, how to swing this thing. It shows how to apply truth to reality. And the author here says, we find wisdom literature in the starting, in the startling directness of Proverbs. You ever read through, especially, by the way, uh, one of the best discipleship manuals for young people is Proverbs 1 through 9. And it's essentially written to young people, now it applies to all of us. But it's direct. What does it call the fool? The fool. What does it call, what's the simple guy? He's the guy that just doesn't know anything. It calls him simple. What does it call the sluggard? The sluggard. In fact, he uses these object lessons. You know, here's Solomon. I looked out my window and I see this young man, void of understanding. And here he is walking into this alleyway. And he's just musing, watching this guy go like an ox to the slaughter. Or he says, I, I passed by the field of the man void of understanding, the empty-headed guy, and it's, it's grown over with nettles and the walls broken down. And he talks about the slothful, and he talks about the harlot, and he talks about uh, the fool and the simpleton, and he talks about the wise. And he just says it like it is. Boom. Uh, teaching how the naive must make every effort to become wise. And then you have the philosophical meanderings of Ecclesiastes, which really what it is. Uh, Ecclesiastes is extremely philosophical. And uh, really, again, I think shows wonderful things about inspiration. That God would inspire a book whose sole purpose was a man who had the ability and the time to try to find happiness without God. And the entire book records what was going on in here. Well, that failed. And uh, I tried alcohol, that didn't work. I tried hundreds and eventually thousand women, that didn't work. I tried fountains and pools and buildings and that didn't work. I tried greater projects, I tried philanthropy, I tried gardens and I tried orchards and I tried and it's just, it's him wandering through this world going, well, maybe this will make me happy. Maybe this will make me happy. And maybe this, and it's, it's like right out of the pages of Hollywood or something. It's a, you know how many men, you know how many people have walked Ecclesiastes without knowing it? Thousands. And what does he get to? This is the whole duty of man, he says. What is it? Fear God and keep his commandments. And all is what? What word keeps appearing? Vanity. Vanity. Life is a blank apart from divine meaning. I, I really, I find it amazing. You, you see these, you know, these richest guys in the world are constantly trying to get to the top. Anybody know who the richest guy is now? Elon Musk. Yeah, it, keep, it, it goes back and forth between Elon Musk and, and Bezos. Both of them have exploded in wealth recently. Bezos was just, he was at 112 billion recently, the world's first centi-billionaire. And last I heard, it's more like 185 billion, and Elon Musk is up there somewhere, and I don't know who's one and two right now, but those guys are at the top, I think. And almost every one of these guys in history, what happens? They turn a corner somewhere in life, and they start giving it away. Almost every one of them. Rockefeller did it. So we have all the stuff named after Rockefeller. Uh, things from uh, Redwoods the, on the West Coast, all the way out to uh, stuff on the East Coast. Uh, Carnegie, Carnegie Hall and various things. He started giving money away. 
And these guys, are, they're like Solomon. They're trying to find happiness. And they, I mean, you think of the emptiness. Let's say you're a lost man, and you pour everything into building this business. You start in your garage, which a lot of them do. And they become, they become wealthy enough where they never, never have to work again. And almost all of them keep working because they've got to have more. And they keep growing and they keep building. And eventually, they, they want to, they, now they break into the Forbes 100 list. And, and then pretty soon they're top 10 wealth in the world. And then they knock off the top guy. And now they're the wealthiest. And now what? What's next? You wanted to be wealthy. You got it. You wanted to be a top. You got it. Now what? Hmm. A lot of them say, well, better get a new wife. I was Bezos recently, at least divorced his wife and uh, trying to figure out what to do next. But then it's giving away. Giving away. Start giving away. Maybe that'll make me happy. It won't. <laughs> Fear God and keep his commandments. So Ecclesiastes is philosophical wanderings of a man who's, again, if you... There are actually groups that will build. Do you know that... Some will teach the doctrine of soul sleep based on Ecclesiastes. They're missing the whole point of the book. The whole point of the book, what is it? Under the sun. That those three words form the backdrop of Ecclesiastes. It's life, it's, it's the philosophical wanderings of a man who's looking at life under the sun, purely earthbound, trying to find happiness by those means. That's what it is. And he looks at it and goes, well, what's the point of man's life? If a guy gets rich... Who knows whether the guy coming after him is going to be an idiot that he has to give it all to. It's vanity. And I build all this stuff and it gets ruined. It's vanity. Or I look and I see the wicked and he's prospering. And then I see somebody who seems good and he's, he's being punished, it looks like. It's vanity. In fact, one of the times he makes a conclusion, a, a middle-of-the-road theology. It's good not to be too godly, he says. Because too many trials come with it. And it's good not to be too evil because, you know, jail and stuff like that. So it's best to chart a middle course. Solomon actually said that in Ecclesiastes. Now, is that a good life philosophy? No. It's a terrible life philosophy. Why is it in the Bible? Because it's showing us where you end up if you're just looking at the world. And really, if you were looking at religion as a means to make, let's say you're a Benjamin Franklin who thought religion was, it wasn't bad, but... It was helpful to have around, but I'm not necessarily going to subscribe to any of them. It's just a tool. You would subscribe to a middle-of-the-road thing. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be the drunkard living on the street. And I don't want people looking at me like I'm a bad guy. But then again, I don't want people thinking I'm a religious fanatic and I'm too dedicated and I'm too heavenly-minded to be earthly good, right? So I'm going to be right in the middle. And that's where Solomon ended up, apart from God and his thinking. Okay, if, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, tells things like that of where you end up. The dialogues of Job with his friends. Their wisdom literature. Any of you ever have struggled reading Job? It's a t it is a tough book. And what you feel like is they're repeating themselves over and over and over again. And, and actually, Job's friends actually all had slightly different emphases. And that's where a Bible survey type book I found to be very helpful. Uh, pointing out stuff like that. And because, you know, you grasped, okay, what's this guy's central philosophy? Just, you know, the, here, here, here's one of Job's friends. He says, experience is it. If I experienced it, it must be true. That's his central philosophy. And so his friends are, are reasoning with him based on partial truth. And, of course, they end up uh, totally wrong. 
All right, Proverbs 1, 7. I'll just mention it. You all know the verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, wisdom literature is designed to transfer knowledge about God and His ways into skill. Basically, wisdom literature, it, you know, it's kind of like you give, let's say you give a new carpenter, you give him a set of tools. Say, here, here's your tools. This is a hammer, this is a square, this is a pencil, this is a saw, but don't touch that until you get a little better at this. And you give him his tools, and now here, here comes somebody else and says, here's what these are for. You see the speed square? Okay, you turn it. This is to determine the pitch of a roof rafter. This little line here, you line that up. So you're showing him how to use the tools in an actual project. That's what wisdom literature does. Proverbs is taking your tools and showing you how to use the hammer, use the square, use the pencil. Okay, it's giving real-world applications. Uh, why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? How come? It's an important question. And by the way, that one verse explains a lot of what's going on in the world. It really does. Well, what's man's fundamental problem? He knows better than who? He knows better than God. So until he submits himself and actually fears the divine being that made him, he has no clue how to live. No clue. That's why, and you see this in the world all the time, you can see people that are hyper-educated. I'm talking sharp minds, photographic memory or eidetic memory, one of these, that can almost, almost photographic memory, and doctorates lined up. Brilliant people, they know. They can, you know, the, you used to watch the show Jeopardy as a kid, I don't really know much about it. Did you ever, any of you ever watched that years ago? I don't even know if it's still around, but we'd watch it sometimes as a family, and I'd sit and I'd think, how do these people know all this stuff? And here they are. They, they can answer questions about artwork from the Renaissance period. And uh, who invented some obscure machine that never quite made it to the mass market? And historical questions from 1000 BC. And science questions and geography questions and geology questions and astrology and astronomy and, and here they, they're just, they're like a fountain of wisdom with that kind of thing. But the same person has no clue how to manage his life when it comes to practical wisdom. More often than not, his relationships are a disaster. He has no fulfillment, if he's honest. He can't make sense out of the world. It would be sort of a cruel bondage to have all this information and pride yourself on it and yet sit in your lonely moments and admit, I have no idea what the point of this earth is. No idea. What are they, what are they saying? Vanity. Vanity. It is empty. So the fear of the Lord, again, in any counseling situation, you, and by the way, counseling situations, and when I say that, I don't mean some formal office that only pastors do. Any one of you can be involved in different counseling situations. You have, you'll have co-workers confide. 
man, my marriage is a wreck. As those doors open, where, where are you prayerfully making a beeline to? The fear of the Lord. That they cannot make sense out of life relationships in the world without knowing God. They cannot. So, really, root causes in, that, in, in cases like that become kind of simple. What, how do I unravel these, these things of life? Now, we don't have the answer to every question, obviously. God does, but... The issue is always more of God. The, 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 that's always, always, always a solution. All right, so you think of the days of Solomon and before and the events that should have taught the children of Israel to know and fear God. They knew about the creation, the flood, the parting of the Red Sea, conquering of the Promised Land. I don't know about you. I read about the parting of the Red Sea and the trip to Sinai and as I read that, one predominant word comes to mind, and that's fear. Sinai was a fearful sight. The sights, the sounds, the shaking, the whole atmosphere was terrifying. But again, without subjection to the Lord, that alone didn't change them, did it? They, they, they weren't far. I mean, they were, they were, they were just a, a few weeks away from the, the golden calf incident at that point. It's, it amazes me about human nature. And by the way, that gives us good insight. You ever, uh, you know something needs to change and you make resolve, Lord, that's it, I'm going to do it, this is it. I am going to do this. And you don't make it 40 days. Part of biblical skillfulness in the New Testament is learning how to apply things like Romans 6 through 8, Philippians 2, <laughs> Ephesians 4 through 6, etc. Um, so it's, it's how to carry out those plans I make. So much of the uh, wisdom literature occurs as poetry. And because of that, we need to be careful not to take figurative language as literal. Again, language that's obviously figurative needs to be taken figuratively. Um, and in the next lesson, we'll get more into uh, figures of speech. Okay, then you get prophetic literature. Of course, the, the keynote of prophecy, as we think about it, is uh, predictions of future events. And again, side note, prophets, as far as I know, none of the prophets were purely futuristic teachers. In fact, I'm, I'm quite confident none of them were just that. They always spoke to their contemporaries as well as the future. And part of that was, part of the proof of being a prophet is that what you said happened. They had to speak to their day. And uh, Daniel had plenty to say to those living in his era, as well as the future. Okay, so did the other prophets. So Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah in Isaiah 53. Okay, those have already been fulfilled. Other prophecies, like Revelation 6 to 22, have yet to be fulfilled, no matter what the preterist tells you. There's people today that think that that's, un again, un just unbelievable to me. The church age is over. All the events in Revelation, they say, have been fulfilled except up to the very end. And they were all fulfilled in the year 70 A.D. at the destruction of the Jewish temple. That's the preterist position. Now, there's different preterist positions, different extremes and moderates and whack jobs and everything else. But essentially, it's saying church age is over and most of that's been fulfilled. You, you think what that does to people. It messes them up. 
And there's where another place literal interpretation is important. I mean, it, 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 read, the, read Revelation 6 to 22, 6 to 19 especially, and tell me you can fit that in 70 AD with the destruction of the Jewish temple. Good luck. You have to totally butcher it to do that. It's pretty obvious it doesn't fit if you just read it as it's written. Um, the prophecies yet to be fulfilled there look ahead to the day when God will cleanse and restore his creation, when Christ will rule. Okay, because of prophetic literature, we know God will triumph over evil and sin. I thank God for prophetic literature. I really do. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, they had some light. You know, there were passages like Isaiah 11 that look forward to the, the millennial kingdom, and they had some light, but not, not like you and I have. Think what a guy like Isaiah, what he'd have thought about the book of Revelation if he could hold it in his hands and read it. I read about this city descending from God out of heaven and descriptions of the jewels and the beauty and the transparent glass and there's no night there and the gates will never be shut. And They didn't have that. We have that. What a, what a privilege that is. Some of the prophetic literature is apocalyptic. And that word just means hidden. The writer's meaning is hidden in the symbols he uses. Apocalyptic literature often employs figurative or symbolic language and mind-stretching ways. I, I heard one preacher years ago put it this way, and I, I tend to agree with it. He talked about apocalyptic language was when the speaker, he was seeing, he was seeing things revealed to him from God out of heaven that were nearly causing him to lose his mind. And when I, when I read that, what comes to mind for me is Ezekiel. Uh, you, 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 read, you ever read the early chapters of Ezekiel and he's talking about the appearance of a likeness of this and wheels within wheels and hands coming out from under wings. And these, he's, he's seeing things that are so far beyond the human ability to describe and write it down. Yet God has him do it anyway. And so he's almost unsure with this, the appearance of a likeness of a whatever, because he's, he's saying that's not exactly what it was, but that's the, best I can, that's the best I can explain it. And God inspired it that way. It's, uh, Daniel uses things like that in the statues and beasts, the four living creatures in Ezekiel 10, Zachariah's vision of the man among the myrtle trees riding a red horse. They go beyond the normal use of figures of speech and poetry. Now, those writings are fascinating, but I think it's a good point written here in this lesson that I want to emphasize. We must be as humble as the original writers when it comes to explaining them. They needed God to provide revelation about the signs and symbols He showed them. Uh, when God, where God has supplied that revelation, the writers decoded the revelation for us so we could understand the normal meaning. Now, where he hasn't decoded it, we have to be careful and sometimes wait because he'll reveal those meanings as end-time events unfold. I think, just think of the book of Revelation for a minute. Um, many try to fit the events, and I again mentioned 6 through 19, many have tried to fit it into current day present events. I mentioned, I remember one prominent teacher talking about how Chernobyl is the Russian word for wormwood. And in fact, that was Jack Van Impey. And, and uh, basically showing in Revelation where the star, star wormwood falls. And I think that was a nuclear disaster in Russia. You know? Wrong time zone. Okay, so that's the wrong application. But there's, there's sections there that 
things that happen, can we explain all of how they're going to be fulfilled? I know many have tried to put helicopters in there. You know, they look at these, uh, these locusts from the bottomless pit. Now I remember a guy saying, well, those are, those are Apache helicopters. Okay, great. I mean, I tend to say there's some kind of demonic locust, but a lot of the symbols and stuff there, the world will know when they see them. And believers that are alive in that age, thank God we won't be, they'll, they'll recognize them. I mean, can you imagine living in an era where you are actually, the bulk of your reading is Revelation 6 to 19 because you're watching it happen over a seven-year period. How many of you want to be there? Oh, I don't. Can you imagine that, though? There will be believers like that. They will, I mean, they think about it. They come to Christ, and, and, and many of them, by the way, how, how's it going to happen? All the believers are gone. There's going to be sermon tapes, Bibles left behind, written literature. There's going to be some of those early converts after the rapture that are converted purely by those means. Reading the Scriptures, listening to a recorded sermon. And they come to Christ, and they realize where all those people went, and they realize they're left behind, and they realize what's happening. Ooh. And so they're going to see those things and go, oh boy, is that, is that ever fulfilled before my eyes? Because they're going to be in the right time zone. So we have to be careful, though. It's hard. To a point, I, I'm fairly dogmatic about Revelation, but some of the details, I, I don't know how they're going to be fulfilled. I don't know what that's going to look like. Stars falling from heaven. Is that meteor showers? Is that comets? I, don't know. Some kind of heavenly body crashes down. Okay, so uh, we have to be careful being too dogmatic about some of the events that God hasn't exactly revealed. Um, so when observing prophetic literature, we have to understand when the prophet ministered and to what future events their prophecies pointed. So um, basically understanding what was happening in their era in the era in which they were prophesying, helps us understand their message more. Um, you know, it's interesting. If you look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, those are the Old Testament passages that speak of Lucifer, the devil. And the interesting thing is, both of those are embedded in warnings, respectively. I think one's against Tyre and one's against Babylon. And right in that warning, he jumps to Satan and then goes back to contemporary events. And just understanding what was going on helps to understand that. He was drawing parallels. Basically, you're like your father, the devil. Why would he jump off to Lucifer, for instance, describing him as full of tabrets and harps and lifted up with his beauty and falling by his eye wills? Because that's exactly what these kings were like. It's exactly what they were like. So it's kind of embedded in that section. And he just it's amazing sometimes how they'll go back and forth Okay, so we need to be careful not to get lost in too much of the obscure when observing prophetic books. Um, we can move on with what we understand to interpretation and application. I mean, so let's say you, you find a believer who's just fascinated with apocalyptic literature. That's all they want to read. They want to go to prophecy conferences and they want to try to figure out uh, who exactly the four horsemen of the apocalypse are. They're obsessed with trying to figure out, is the Antichrist, is he Italian, is he Jewish? Is he a mixture? Is he Italian and pretends to be Jewish? Or is he Jewish and pretends to be Italian? Or is he half Jew and half Italian? Because really there's good evidence. If you're not familiar with the discussion, the people of the princes shall come in Daniel 9. It seems to suggest he's Roman. 
But yet, would the Jews really accept a non-Jewish Messiah? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. So if somebody gets totally involved in that, what's usually going to happen? They're going to be a very, very lopsided Christian. Um, a lot of times people can miss the application and the point of these passages trying to figure out all the detail, all the fascinating details. Uh, I want to be careful saying this, but anytime I see a ministry that makes prophecy their focus, I kind of cringe. And I'm not saying there's no good ones, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying generally, historically, that hasn't ended well. Because there's only so much prophecy. And when that becomes your focus, you, you tend to attract a following that's like the Athenians on Mars Hill. They, they always want to hear something new. The prophecy conferences are, are popular as long as the gospel is not powerfully and forcefully preached. As long as there's not, here's what you have to do, you need to repent. As long as that's missing, people will come to a prophecy conference. They will. They, they become, people want to hear something new. They want to know about what's going on in the world without being told they need to change their life. Um, so a person like that needs to study the entire Bible with spiritual growth, not intellectual knowledge as the major goal. It's not just knowing things in your head. Okay, in Revelation 22.12, the Lord says, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give unto every man according as his work shall be. Now, I just mentioned Revelation's hard to be dogmatic in some of the detail, but what does that verse show us in Revelation 22.12? The Lord wants us to make some very pointed application, even though we can't understand all the detail there in that apocalyptic literature. What's the application? Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes soon, we are all going to give an account for what we did with time, treasure, talents, health, intelligence. With the stewardships we've been given, we're going to give an account. And the idea of him saying, my reward is with me, he's saying, I'm going to deal with this quickly. So, what are the central lessons of Revelation? Let's get our act together and be close to God. Okay? It's not whether or not there's nuclear bombs in Revelation 14. Okay? That, that's not the focus. And are they coming from Russia or Iran? That's not the focus. I come quickly. My reward is with me. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen to that. All right, we've got to stop. Any other questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us all these various types of literature in your word. We praise you for it. And we know, Lord, I'll admit, it's hard to understand some of it, much of it. And uh, I'm not a literature buff by nature who just automatically recognizes all these different structures. But I, I pray you'd help us to grow together in this with the goal of knowing your will, of understanding, Lord, how you uh, think about things and that we might conform our life to your perfect will. Thank you for giving us truth. Amen.